Hello, my name is Mercedes Dormy, and welcome to Through the Portal, conversations around my project, Portal for Tovangar, which is part of the Monumental Perspectives collaboration between LACMA and Snapchat. Monumental Perspectives is an initiative that uses augmented reality to explore monuments and murals, representation, and history. Portal for Tovangar presents a portal between past, present, and potential future worlds, proposing a community healing opportunity and exploration of truth in understanding indigenous intrinsic knowledge. This project shifts away from memorializing heroes and singular events to engage the continued presence of Native people in Tovangar, present-day Los Angeles. These conversations will explore the multiple layers of information and experience that exist below the concrete, all around us, and above us every day. I welcome you to move between past, present, and future worlds as I speak with experts throughout the city of Los Angeles, my ancestral homelands of Tovangar. From archaeology and poetry to the stars, I invite you to take a walk, listen to the conversations, and see the land and sky through a new lens. Look down, what do you see? Where are your feet? What does the air feel like? What sounds might you have just heard? Below you is generations of history nestled under the concrete that covers so much of Los Angeles today. What you are about to hear is a conversation between myself and Dr. Wendy Teeter, head curator of archeology span and lecturer at the UCLA Fowler Museum about the history of the land you are currently standing on. I've known Wendy for many years and was introduced to her through the extensive work she has done with my father, Robert Dormy. She has always been a great ally to the Tongva community. Wendy has been generous in access to collections, preservation, and collaborations, and I am especially grateful to her for her tireless efforts in the repatriation of our ancestors. In this conversation, Wendy and I peel back some of the concrete of Los Angeles and get a view of the history and context which lies just beneath our feet. Please join us. I'm Wendy Teeter. I'm the senior curator of archaeology for the Fowler Museum at UCLA and the repatriation coordinator for UCLA as well. I find the La Brea Tar Pits very fascinating because when you go there, there's this very big focus on the dinosaurs and on these spaces. And we know that a woman was pulled, uh, an ancient woman was pulled from the springs quite a while ago. And, and there's sort of this uh, mystery of how did she end up in the tar pits? Did she fall in? Was she pushed in? Was she sacrificed? The typical mysterious trope of the days before and she's really never gotten a chance to tell her story for who she was or what was around there because the excavations that occur there and they occur there constantly are focused really on what comes out of the muck or the the tar seeps themselves 
in those excavations, which are really like Mesolithic and, you know, like super long time ago. And that's great, but we don't get a chance to know more about the more recent early Holocene time period when we have people roaming the land as well. I think I'm really interested in what the land and the tar pits point to, both in what the tar might have been used for by the people who did inhabit that place and the surrounding areas, and maybe the connection to uh, neighboring village sites. I remember Cindy and Charlie Cook and your your dad, you know, walking through these places and saying, like, this is here. You're walking now on this village site or if you see the slope, um, if you're down in Santa Monica and you are coming down Ocean Park, you're you're purposefully going down into this little um, river basin and then you go back up and you're on hill and then you go back down to the to the water edge. So you're seeing these topographies that have been paved over and squashed and kind of flattened in the way that we really live in modern society in, in uh, cars, you don't really know that you would have to expend a lot of energy to go, <laughs> to go from 20th to, to the beach because you're going up and down these hills because it's just you're in a car and you maybe hit the, the gas a little bit more during some part. But um, walking that land and, and being able to see it, I think with more um, generational eyes of the past, where um, has helped me really understand it or, or feel a little bit more connected to the land that's just right beneath that, that asphalt. I've worked on sites as a cultural consultant and I was trained by my father. And the thing that he always told me was, we're here to maintain the humanity of these you know, people who are being excavated or these things that belong to them that, you know, there's always multiple perspectives, but our job and the perspective we were meant to really bring is this human um, contact. And, you know, I think about the work you've done on with us in repatriation and that process, which is kind of this other level of interaction with the land that, you know, carries a lot of weight. Yeah. You get trained in this very sort of sterile, you know, the past is something we uncover and you use these scientific methods in order to uncover them. And it's it's done in this vacuum where people are just people, this sort of universality of people, uh, sort of natural beings that make dis- rational decisions. And m- people are messy, right? We make decisions all the time that are not necessarily good for our health, we eat the second jelly donut when we really shouldn't. And yet there was this very structured order within archaeology about how we're supposed to to view decision making. And so when you work with the community, I think I've been very fortunate to understand a little bit more about, you know, how we don't always make the decisions. We are selfish. We can be very personal in our decision making and remembering that these folks that we end up encountering when there's excavations or just encountering them on the shelves, that there are people who really do care about them still and that they they do need to go home. And humanizing it is, I think, is really an important word. And so we have this whole new thing called indigenous archaeology, which acknowledges that there are living people who have connection with the past and want to have a say over what happens to their ancestors. Wow. It's kind of an amazing idea to like this idea of like do no harm because I, I've often tried to explain this to people when you're dealing with 
these people and and part of my work as an artist is about taking us out of these boxes of, that are solely relegated to the past tense that that is important that is meaningful that is like integral to our identity but we're also living <laughs> we also exist you know we will be here in the future sometimes i get in these conversations where people say oh they're just bones you know because people only see us in the past tense and so long ago and yes some of these things are dated very long ago but it's still somebody's aunt or uncle or daughter and you know that's the thing my dad tells me over and over again remember that this is somebody's relative these are our relatives um and i think that that's so important and, and that's also why i like this particular site because i'd like to imagine how it might have been used how it might have been connected to the neighboring villages and so maybe we can talk a little about that um, yeah. like the connection yeah no it's it's actually really cool and i guess that's where it's so easy to go down these rabbit holes with, with these talks <laughs> um because it really one you have to be in touch that you're on a living landscape and that the living landscape has never been disassociated from the people that walk the land so you can you can commodify it you can pave it over you can put a house, but the land itself still exists. And, and recognizing that there's still thousands of people in Los Angeles that are Tongva, that are still have that, that intergenerational memory of that land is, is something that's really important. When I look at the, the tar pits, there's a couple of different things that I, I think about. You know, One, there's this sort of um, mix of oil and water and so that you would have this surface water that would make it look like some place that you could drink. And if you went too deep, obviously, you could get stuck. So it's almost like a mirage, like a quicksand kind of thing. But then also knowing that asphaltum or tar was so integral to so many things and working on Catalina on Pimunya is really important because you see that tar used in so many purposes. Everything from... You, you're making little balls and wading down a skirt to, you know, using it as caulking for a boat and knowing that you had to have sand to make sure that your temperature, your heating temperature, boiling temperature would change. So there's a there's a chemistry portion to knowing tar that the Tongva knew. So what are those additives? And these are things that are still going on in Mexico. There's a whole community of people down by Via Hermosa that are still using tar in this way. And they know what those recipes are for changing the viscosity of, of tar. So this place, we can now look at it through a chemistry set, through electro scan microscopes and, and ICPMS, or you know, basically the chemical composition of the tar and identify it in artifacts. That's great. We know that the La Brea tar pits were used by the Tongva people, but then what more, right? It's like, okay, great. But there's so much more to that living history that we can then say, okay, they use some seeps that are on Catalina and from the ocean and from this beach and from, the, from La Brea and from um, Carpinteria, which was also called Carpinteria because it was the place where boats were caulked. And people don't often remember that that they are not looking at the real land. It's been beaten by cows and, and goats and pigs, and it's been cemented over and it's been pushed in concrete. So we don't get a chance to actually visit many places where it's still 
the way it would have been. So even something that's considered so ucky, like tar, it, you know, like you're saying, it becomes there's recipes and there's relationships and there's tending, and you know, and all of that has this sort of um, meaning and structure and form and care that we we really don't get a chance to look at. I think what we're really talking about and why I admire your work so much is really about this uh, remembering of the landscape and and that it's it's again it's been just beneath the surface but that it's it's there and it's waiting to sort of reemerge. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think about like connecting to the land and, and it's almost I I was I just started braiding sweet grass and there's this moment where she says ceremony is remembering to remember. I sometimes walk through landscapes in the hills and I get this whiff of something that is so familiar. And part of it's because I grew up playing on these hillsides um, in the Malibu area. And it reminds me of being a child, but it's like the sun hitting these these plants and it's so specific. And so I'm always trying to like tune into those moments. And it goes into this idea that I think is kind of what has to kind of be replaced to, to even begin this conversation is this land was just, you know, open, empty, and for the taking. And for me, um, it was cared for. There were maybe not practices that were recognizable to the people who came here. It wasn't like your traditional farming methods, perhaps, but there was still this intricate knowledge, this intricate understanding, and this relationship with the land that there was care. Um, and, and, and then the land took care of the people. And so I think that it, it kind of, you have to let go of some of your hubris, you know, you kind of have to let go and be a little bit humble to maybe think you don't know best <laughs> and to kind of respond to what's there, um, and to reimagine what's possible. But I think that it's, it's really being in these places and feeling them and understanding them in a, in a way that is connected to the original caretakers that can allow for some imagination around what can really um one repair some of this damage or repair some of the destruction and also um, open up new pathways to new spaces to new um, interactions which maybe ties into this idea of looking at these old springs mm -hmm. if you want to talk about that a little bit like things that have been maybe closed or opened or right. what the potential is there. Well, it, it, it's amazing how many people think that we live in this desert, that LA is this desert. And I'm like, no, no, this is the a Mediterranean ecosystem. There was tons of water. There was tons, there's an abundance here, which is why when you have the colonial settlers coming in, they're like, yeah, we're home. Like we're, we're good. We're going to live here. But you know, there, there was all of these sort of wetlands that you you can really still see in San Diego. And then you move up and you see them become less and less frequent. And they're then cemented over and you have, you know, sort of the back bay that's still open a bit, you know, Bolsa Chica. You have less and less, but you have these few places, Bayona. But even those spaces have been so reformed. And so when you tell people that it used to be an inland sort of sea, a swampy area that went all the way to downtown Culver City, they have like a heart attack. So trying to find those few places that still are open has been my new challenge in, um, in working with the community and then kind of seeing how they've been commodified over the years. Where were these places? And then how quickly did they 
get kind of gobbled up into this system of ownership of this is mine now, you can no longer have access to it and how that damaged people. You know, to take away water, and this has been something that people have talked about, Indigenous people have talked about for at least a couple of decades, is that the next gold would be water. The more that we buy water and not demand that water be clean, the more that we are creating harm. Kuravangna, the Uni High Springs, are one of those places where we get a chance to kind of see that water, you know, the original water, but also knowing that it's being dumped into just into the drain and like shuffled out to sea. So here's a clean water source that's just being left to go down the drain. And the community members there are actually thinking about how can they take care of the land with that water and and use it in a way that it's doing what it's supposed to do, which is care for us and help the plants grow and help food grow and and have, you know, places for animals to come and and get water. So to reimagining those spaces, uh, there's so few. Because when you think about how the river was paved in, where the, the water no longer feeds the land, which is kind of much bigger than the immediate area, right? That seepage is important to the whole surrounding area. I often look at these places where water still exists. I think of Kutavana Springs. I think of Ferndale is somewhere I go. I always take people there because it's like an access point where people can understand, right, we need water, right? It doesn't rain that much here. So like this place sustained many, many, many thousands of people. How? Because it doesn't rain that much. And so I point to these places that people live, must have lived around because they needed that water source. And I feel like that kind of is becoming part of the consciousness of this connection. But it is one of these ideas where if you're used to kind of turning on the tap and you get something and not really questioning where that comes from or where like the the cyclical nature of water that feeds it yeah no and and that sort of bigger systems right so when we, we can go from the La Brea tar pits the sort of uh, source of asphaltum but also a, a source of water a source of plants and the the environmental systems that were we're living together in reciprocity in that area. And it's part of this larger sort of um, care intending than people living in the area and, and knowing how to best manage without harm doing harm. So it's just this sort of disconnection that, you know, and this idea that Native people were passive mm-hmm. on the landscape and that even with these sort of naturalist dreams of sustainability, there's still this look of, of a... Um, of sort of a dream-like people that that were part of nature and did no harm, which is why we have all of these old exhibits that had Indigenous people only in the natural history museums and not in historical museums or cultural historical museums that's still there. It's funny to think when you said like, oh, in L.A. it's harder to understand because things have been paved over. And I think that sometimes I... I I think about, it was in Lies My Teacher Told Me, mm-hmm. where he says, like, when you start talking about Native history and things, you're not start, starting from zero. Right. You're starting from, like, negative 100. You know, <laughs> and it's kind of like the same feeling of, like, in L.A., you're not starting from, like, zero. Like, you have to, like, peel off the concrete and peel off these visual kind of codes or recognitions that people um, ascribe to the place to get to this 
space where people can understand this this presence that exists. Yeah. I think my my big concern as an archaeologist is that in the 19, you know, 1900s through the 1950s and 60s and 70s, when they built a house, they just kind of like leveled it. And then you have these houses built on the land. And now you get these big, gigantic apartment buildings and they're going several tens of feet, right? Like 20 feet and stuff like that. That means that all of that history is erased. And so if we don't have somebody there that's actually watching and, and there to advocate for what might be in that space, we lose it and we never know. And I always think about how heart-wrenching it is because there are still things there and we don't know because it's been um, paved over for such a long time. And so people will go, oh, well, we don't know that there's a site there. And it's like, yeah, because in 1852, they put a house there and, and it's been built on since. So how are we supposed to be able to fight for a space that we've never been able to have access to for so long. If we could recognize those early connections, those early collections and and put them back on the landscape and then the same with the water and then map the water, you're going to, I feel confident that you're going to see people live there, right? Duh. Um, so, so recognizing there, there are still processes that we can go back and and remember the land, as as you were saying. I think that's really an important point. It's not about you know revitalization or whatever people will say. It's just remembering. It's being able to to touch those spaces. And La Brea seems like it's also a place that was super important. Obviously, it had it had this um, life force, this asphaltum. Uh, that was there and, and was so super integrated in doing different kinds of activities, but it was also part of a bigger system, right? And so we don't know where the cleaner water source was that would have been right there. We don't know where the village was that was right there. And now we have this metro line that is also like taking out humongous chunks. And fortunately there are monitors there, but we're still sort of gobbling and gobbling up in this machine called modern society all of that, all of those stories that we can't access again. So it becomes super important that we try to remember them. It it becomes like uh, urgent because we we see how fast places are being transformed for the need for housing and all of that. And it's not to prevent that, right? We live in this society, but it is to recognize that we still have a connection and need to know the land as well. Yeah, I just was thinking about like this beautiful overlay of maps where it's like these kind of knowledge around the objects that came out and then the water sources and then what we know now and the, in, you know, different iterations of people who came through and made accounts historically. And I, you know, it's like kind of this layer building. And I feel like for me, that's what this piece is really about is like creating these, it's called portal for Chavanga and it's about being able to move between these worlds and 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 you can take that in like a maybe like a spiritual sense and like go up into the sky world and you know imagine that but it's also a literal sense that you know where you can get into the land and the history and the context and all of the work that's been done around that and really understand where you exist in this kind of central space so much better and kind of build with that understanding this Um, movement to the future that is better for the people who come after us. So 
Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of your time. This is wonderful. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Wendy Teeter. I am Mercedes Dormy, and this program, Through the Portal, was presented in conjunction with my work, Portal for Tovungar, an augmented reality project that is part of the LACMA Times Snapchat Monumental Perspectives. This initiative is made possible by Snapchat. Additional support is provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This listening experience was produced by Sound Made Public with Tanya Ketengian, Claire Mullen, Jeremiah Moore, and Philip Wood. For more information about Portal for Tovangar, please visit lacma.org slash D-O-R. A-M-E. Thank you for listening.